going to start a new uh, series today, and uh, the series is focusing on the statements by Jesus in the book of John called I Am. So this series is called uh, I Am, and in John's Gospel there are eight of these statements that Jesus makes about himself. We'll look at probably four of them this term, and then we might pick up the rest uh, next term. These statements, these uh, I ams, are the self-revealing statements of Jesus saying something about who he is. And uh, they're not collected in a block, but they're scattered through uh, John's account of the life of Jesus, starting in chapter 6, going through to chapter uh, 15. Is it playing up? Yeah, okay, I'll leave you to fix it. Uh, But I'll need it when I need to read the Bible verses. Uh, And uh, John, if you know how John writes, John likes to collect themes together. He's a a thematic presenter of Jesus. He's not bothered about what year something was said. He likes to group the common themes about Christ together, the stories about water, the stories about filling. And then he has these uh, statements of Christ where he talks and says, uh, this is I am and the statements that follow from that. Today we're going to look at the first uh, one of those, which is where Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says this, I am the light of the world. Now, to understand these statements, we need to um, delve into the Old Testament. And perhaps you want to uh, open your Bibles on the tables and turn to page 40, and we'll read from there in just a moment. In this same chapter of John chapter 8 that has this statement where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Uh, He also says, uh, in answer to a question from the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he says, uh, before Abraham was, I am. So these these statements about Jesus are, are more than just him describing his personality or his mission or his uh, methodology or even his message they are statements that run far deeper because they're in essence he's saying something about the origins of who he is as the son of God the very use of this statement I am and then the very use of that phrase in in John chapter 8 verse 54 where he says before Abraham was I am are part of Christ's revelation that he is not just that person that was born in Bethlehem and lived amongst them, but actually he is their God of heritage. He is actually part of their history. Even Abraham, who was several thousand years before any of them uh, had been born, was part of their history, was one of the patriarchs, one of their, uh, uh, the, the people from which they are descended, he's saying, even before Abraham, I am. He is defining himself as being beyond that time frame, of outside that scope of their chronology. Well, let's pick up a story in uh, Exodus chapter 3. It's on page 40. And we're going to read verses uh, 9 to 14. And the story we're picking up is the uh, story of the burning bush. Pet peeve, by the way, the bush story, the bush doesn't burn. 
In fact, the whole thing about the burning bush, because uh, Moses is in the desert and there would have been burning bushes all the time. That would have been a really common thing. A bush, like rolling around a dead bush, it's, caught, it's hot, it's caught on fire and it burns up. One day Moses walks past a bush that's aflame but is not consumed. And of course this is miraculous, it's spectacular. And so it catches his attention. And as he's engaged in this, seeing this phenomena, God speaks to him. So we're going to jump into the story at verse 9. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign that it's I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. This phrase, I am, is the phrase that Jesus is picking up when he makes these statements about himself. He is not just saying, I am the light of the world, but he's identifying with this revelation of who God was, who God proclaimed himself to be to Moses. Moses, of course, was uh, about to lead God's people out of oppression into a new land. Um, it was a daunting task. Um, people reckon that there were at least half a million people. It could have been up to two million people that he needed to lead. And Moses was to lead it out of this encounter with God in the bush that didn't burn, the bush that was aflame that didn't burn, the God that spoke to him out of that. God says, I'm going to be with you. You're going to lead the people out. And Moses just has one question to ask. He says, that's all great. It's all great. All I need to know is they're going to ask me, what's the name of God who sent you and told you to do this? And God says, okay, when they ask that, what you are to say is say, I am who I am. You can imagine Moses' disappointment at that. Like It doesn't even make sense. Like He's wanting God to say, tell them Dave sent you. You know, tell you, tell them that shiny king spoke to you and that shall be my name. You know, he kind of wanted some kind of adjective, some noun that he could use, some kind of iconic words that would be reserved for this God who spoke from the bush. Tell them that the God who speaks from the burning bush sent you and then it would be easy for him to lead the people out because he could tell them who he was. Instead, God refuses to be defined by a name or even a label, but he reveals himself by simply saying, just say, I am who I am. Now, if you're a philosopher, you'll know 
like whole PhDs and like libraries of books can be written about just that statement. Uh, in fact, a number of the philosophical proofs about who God is hang on this idea of self-definition. The kind of ex- existential, ontological, teleological proofs about God. The kind of proofs about God that philosophers use down the pub with their mates on Friday nights. And they go through all the logical arguments. And when you get to the r- conclusion of it, the logic compels you to see that God is real. It only really works with philosophers. The, I- the idea is kind of simple, though. It's, it's the way toddlers often speak to parents. So imagine a a toddler is eating a bar of chocolate and they say to their dad, "Uh, Dad, uh, where does chocolate come from? And so the dad says, son, chocolate comes from the chocolate shop. And then the toddler says, Dad, where does the chocolate shop get chocolate from? And dad says, the chocolate shop gets it from the chocolate factory. And then maybe the son says, who made the factory? And the dad says, A man with a big crane, he made the factory. And then the toddler says, Dad, who made the big crane? And the dad says, the big crane was made by a really clever engineer. And and the toddler says, and who made the really clever engineer? And the, the, the questions go on and on and on. Now, if you're a parent, you've had endless conversations with children about that. The why questions, the how, how did that happen? Where do babies come from? Who cleans up my bedroom when I'm asleep? Where does the food get made? You know, all these deep philosophical ideas that toddlers have and lurk within deep the hearts of all of us. And if you follow that back, if you follow back that kind of argument that says, what made that? Okay, then what made that? Okay, well, what made that? You eventually get bigger and bigger. You eventually see uh, a containing and a containing and a containing. You kind of, it's like you're zooming out on creation, on the universe. And the philosophical logic says eventually you reach that thing that is not defined by anything that became before it, anything that made it, or anything that's bigger. Than it. And when you have identified that thing, you are gazing upon God. Now that's what philosophers do for fun. But this is what God's doing. He's not saying, okay, uh, people have lots of gods, so I'll just name myself so I can be distinguished amongst all the other opinions or names of God that people might have all the other ways in which people might speak about the idea of God, God says, you are speaking to the God who needs no name because I am who I am. I am defined only by who I am. Nothing made me, nothing is bigger than me, nothing came before me. I remember as a child the, the wrestling with these philosophical things. One came to mind this morning as I was thinking about it. Um, back in the day when I was a child, um, shock revelation to some of you, uh, families had at most one telephone. 
I know, it was awful. And uh, the, like the telephone was in a common room so that everyone could hear everyone's conversation whenever you needed to speak upon the phone. And actually, when the phone rang, it was an occasion. You know, it was, it was a real event, a rare, a rare occurrence. The phone is ringing. There was no, like, pictures flashing up because there was nothing for the pictures to flash up on. Not even a number came up on the phone. You'd have to actually answer it in order to know who was there. And my mum had taught me how to answer the phone. So I'd pick up the phone, I'd say, uh, our, uh, our address, just in case, you know, they'd gone to the wrong address. I'd say the phone number, and then, uh, I w- uh, and then they, they would say who they are, and then I had to say, who shall I say is speaking? And then whoever they told you they were, then you'd know which member of the family they were calling for, and then you could introduce them. You could say... Uh, Mother, Mr. Smith from work is calling and would like to speak. No, we weren't like that. We weren't posh at all. But you could announce the call. And I I remember the agonies once when somebody rang up. And I did my whole routine. This is uh, 82 Norland Avenue. This is 503042. My name is Christian. How can I help? They they said, I'd like to speak to my mum's name. And I said, and who shall I say is calling? And he said... Tell her it's me. This was my ontological moment. This was when I was rung up by somebody who refused to be measured by any definition or or label or known. For all I know, it could have been the God of heaven ringing up. Although I think it was Mr. Smith, the head of maths, ringing up to speak about work. This is what... Jesus is saying about himself when he makes these statements. When he says, I am the light of the world. He's not just saying, I bring light. He's defining himself in the very essence of what those ideas are. And he's identifying himself with the God of the history of the people who followed God. I want to suggest that there are at least four pictures, some some ideas, some things that would have been in the minds of those who first heard this statement from Jesus, I am the light of the world. And we'll just whiz through them, they're different verses which will come up on the screen. And the first is in Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we read that uh, the earth is going to come up, yay, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning and the first day. The first hearers of Jesus saying these words would have been very well schooled in these Bible verses. In fact, most of the men at school would have memorised Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. That would, be part of, that would have been their basic religious education. They would have been very familiar with these words. And the moment they heard this rabbi, Jesus, saying, I am the light of the world, they would have thought of this passage, this first statement about light. And light here is associated with the idea of creation. Darkness is, is associated with uh, emptiness, nothingness, nullness. 
Darkness is not just that we can't see what's there. The darkness here is the absence. And the light is the shining out from God that made the world around us. Again, philosophers have lots of discussions about, is that what the Big Bang is? Is that, is that what happened there? Is that the explosion of light that's been referred to? Let's discuss that in cell groups during the week. But the idea is that this light isn't just a switching on of the light in a dark room and then we can see what's already there, but is the creating light of God that made the world in which we exist. A bit like maybe, um, did you ever do this in, in physics where you take a white light and then you put it through a prism and then you can see, amazingly, that white light contains all the different colours of the rainbow in shades. And the more you can spread it out, the more you can find all the different colours that are there. I think it's that kind of idea that the light in the beginning, it was light from God that shone out and made the world in which we live. The next idea I think the hearers would have picked up is from Isaiah chapter 9. And in this passage it says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. Isaiah was one of the prophets speaking about the Messiah who would come, kind of foretelling, describing in advance what it would be like to encounter uh, Jesus, what this Messiah would bring. And this is an idea of light associated with um, rescue and liberation. The darkness that's there is the darkness of oppression and, and suffering and an extreme poverty of, of life being crushed and constrained. And the light is the liberty, the freedom, the hope, uh, the direction to, this is the good way to travel, the liberty that comes from that. It was a, a promise to refugee people that God was bringing hope and goodness to them. Years ago, we... I used to work for a, a church in Coventry and I was the verger, which uh, the job was mainly to be grumpy, have a lot of keys, lots of tidying up. But occasionally I got to do some cool stuff in some of the church services that we had. And one of the services we had was based at, at Christmas on this passage. And it was a service called Darkness to Light. And the whole service was dis- defined in order to uh, help us see the idea that God is the one that brings light and that light is hope and truth and love and direction and, and revelation and it's the, it's the glory of God being revealed. And back in the day we did it with candles, 2,000 candles. I remember the first day I was told about it, Christian, we will have this service and we will have 2,000 candles and I thought, it's incredible. And the idea was you'd start with just one lit candle and then it would spread and spread and it would spread. And then I can picture it, by the end it was magnificent. Guess whose job it was to put out 2,000 candles? It takes a whole week to put 2,000 candles around a church building. They were tied to pillars and 
puens. They were in the stone pulpit. Everyone in the choir got one. They were on the altar, hanging from the ceiling, on the floor. They were on stands. They were, like, taped onto things. Everyone that came got a candle as well. It was just candles everywhere. And then we'd have this service, and it, it was magnificent. It was incredible. We would start with just one light, and somebody would sing this song, and usually, like, one of the little choir boys or something, and like everyone's crying and, and slowly the room just fills with this beautiful light and then by the end we've got 2,000 lit candles and we throw on all the spotlights and it's the finale, you know, Christ is here and he's, uh, his light, uh, I am the light of the world and uh, we celebrate who Jesus was. Absolutely love that service except the next day, guess who had to clean up the mess? 2,000 candles make a lot of mess. Wax on every like pew, every bit of stone, on all the floor, like all the cloth, everything. Took a whole week to clear it up. Isaiah speaks about this idea, the coming of light that brings liberty. That when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I am that one that was promised, who would come and be shone into dark places of oppression and pain and human suffering and bring freedom and liberty and hope. Another passage is Psalm 139, which says, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. And this is a psalm that says, no matter how dark life feels, no matter how far away I may feel like I am from the light of God, actually God sees. God's there with me. God's looking after everything. When I look at the world and see dark places, God says in this psalm, that thing hidden away in horrible darkness, that's hidden away from truth and light and goodness, I still see what's there. That's a psalm of justice. It's an idea that actually God's light penetrates everywhere. Maybe you go out at night and you know it's dark and you can, you can only just see what's there. But God sees. God is light. So God sees every situation. He looks into every dark place and he can see what's going on there. He's the God of justice. None of those things have been hidden from him. They haven't been done and he doesn't know about them. We hear uh, that you know one day God will uh, judge all deeds. He will reckon all debts. What was done in secret will be proclaimed from the rooftop. God has seen all those things. Things done in the light and things done in the darkness. And then maybe the last scripture, one that of course uh, came after Jesus in Revelation chapter 21, which says this. The city does not need sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring splendour into it. Uh, On no day will its gates be ever shut, for there will be no night. And this fourth telling about the fulfilment of the idea of Jesus being the light of the world, that eventually... Though he's kind of like shining in, actively going into places, bringing light. There will be a day when that comes to its fullest fulfilment. And it, and it can be described in this way, as if to say, and then there will be no more dark. Nothing 
hidden from God, nothing escaping the goodness of God, nothing escaping the influence of Jesus. A time when all the promises that God has made get to be fulfilled because Jesus is the light of the world. And so this idea of light, Jesus being the light of the world, it's, it's, it's peppered through our vocabulary. We use it when we talk about the word light. We talk about it as seeing truth. So we say things like, I've seen the light. Uh, we talk about it when uh, things that are not right in our lives are revealed. We talk about being under the spotlight. We talk about uh, light as being um, bringing direction to our light, uh, lives. So we say, uh, you know, a lighting of the way. Uh, directing us with light. We talk about light as an idea of hope when we say light at the end of the tunnel. And even when we talk about day and night and the shades through the times, the, you know, the sunset and sunrise, uh, the light brings that rhythm and practice to the, to the seasons of our lives. In the next chapter, after where Jesus says his words, in John chapter 9, he repeats them again. John chapter 9, verse 5. Uh, and he says, um, uh, Wherever, while I'm still in this world, I am the light of the world. And he says it in answer to being questioned about why he's doing good. Why is he helping people? Why is he healing the sick? Why is he proclaiming his message? And he equates the doing of that with this idea that he is the light of the world. Now I think we're all comfortable with the idea that Jesus is the hero here, that Jesus is the light of the world, that he's the one that we look to and say, brilliant, you're the I am, you're the one that's God before anything else, you're that one, and you're the one who brings the light into our world. But here Jesus, I think, kind of brings it down to grassroots, and he's saying, all those incredible ideas that you know because you've read about me through the Old Testament and you've heard the things that I've said, they are all rooted in the things that I am doing on earth. So when Jesus went around doing good, when Jesus went around speaking words of truth, when Jesus went uh, healing people and setting people free, he equates that with being the light of the world. And he says it in an interesting way, doesn't he? Um, while I am with you, I am the light of the world. What that leads me to believe is that now he has passed the baton for being the light of the world to his church. Jesus died, risen from the grave at God's right hand, who is now entrusted with the ministry of being the light of the world. I think his church I think when we are active in society, running Easter fun days and starting new churches and when we're uh, uh, serving God in our workplace or in our neighbourhoods, when we're helping others, when we're having conversations about truth, when we're uh, uncovering things that are dark and hidden that should be brought into the light, when we're acknowledging what's wrong in our lives and taking steps to put it right, when we're simply doing practical acts of good deeds, I think we, then, are being the light of the world. 
I want you to finish this idea at your tables of being the light of the world. This idea that we've gone from the very essence of who God is revealed in this statement, I am the light of the world, to understanding what it, it means, the shining of hope, uh, the, the creation of God, the justice, the sense of the presence of God, the sense of the uh, rescue from oppression, the bringing of freedom, the baton that Jesus has as the light of the world while he walked on this earth, and now I believe passed to us as his church, what does that mean for your life? What could it mean for you tomorrow to say, I am the light of this world, or my world, or that person's world? Where, where would that be? Is it where you live? Is it where you work? Is it somebody you know, who you know you will meet? Is it a dreadful situation that you're aware of? Is it, is it somewhere, is it a situation at work or where you know, do you know what, light just needs to come into this. Uh, this just needs to be revealed for who it is. Or hope needs to come into this situation. Or so this person needs to be rescued from this. This person needs to be healed. Some good needs to come into this situation. And if it's in your hands to do it, you're not God, but if it's in your hands to do it, what, what might the activity that you do look like to be the light of that situation? What practical deed might it be? It might be just simply that you bring words of encouragement, or you offer to pray, or you pray about the situation, um, or there's some other practical activity that you bring. So let's take just five minutes at our tables to do that before we come to an end. And maybe if it helps you to think what you'll be doing tomorrow, on Monday tomorrow, on Monday morning, Monday afternoon, what would it mean for you to be the light of your world or the light of someone else's world?